Hello, friends. Have you noticed that you can get caught up in consuming content? Or maybe you notice you are hyper, hyper focused on the doing. Empaths, we often consume. And I know because that was me too, soaking up information from all my favorite teachers and mentors. But it wasn't until I started focusing more on the being and embodiment work that the door to massive clarity was finally unlocked. And I no longer got confused about what was my energy versus everybody else's. I was able to become a more clear channel for creation and as a result, transform my life, business, and health. In fact, my meditation and embodiment practice is what helped me have a nearly $40,000 month this past January, see the highest downloaded month of the podcast, and finally release a lot of unnecessary stress. And my clients felt it and saw it in their lives too. It wasn't reading more articles. It wasn't doing more busy work. So I'm inviting you to graduate from the spongy empath consumer into the self-activated sovereign healer. You can take your podcast listening experience from, ooh, I feel seen, heard, and inspired to, holy shit, I actually feel different. My being has shifted. I am the embodiment of the woman I desire to be. The Third Eye Collective is a simple way to upgrade your experience and commit not only to a meditation practice that complements your healing, but also receive personalized coaching so you can be clear on what direct actions to implement into your highest goals. There are two simple ways to get involved at $11 or $22 a month with no commitment. So if this is calling your name, join this amazing and growing community. Welcome to the Uncensored Empath, a place for us to discuss highly sensitive energy, illness, healing, and transformation. My name is Sarah Small, and I'm a life and success coach for empaths who want to create a thriving body, business, and life. Think of this podcast as your no BS guide to navigating life, health, and entrepreneurship. You'll get straight to the point, totally holistic tips from me in real time as I navigate this healing and growth journey right beside you. This is a Soul Fire production. This conversation is honestly one of my most favorite I have ever had on this show. And my guest, Dr. Christopher Kerr, is truly amazing in the work that he does. And I was honored to receive a copy of his book called Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. And I had so many eye-opening aha moments. It was unreal. So I was super, super excited to then invite him onto the show and have this conversation today. He is the CEO and Chief Medical Officer at Hospice Buffalo and has received his PhD in neurobiology as well as completed his residency in internal medicine at the University of Rochester. The research and case studies that he presents on today's episode and also on his website, drchristopherkerr.com, are truly fascinating to me. Even if death and dying doesn't fascinate you and pique your interest and curiosity of all these questions the way it does for me, I know you're still going to gain so many beautiful insights into the death and dying process today. So while it may not be the lightest conversation, there's so much healing inside of this conversation and the medicine that Chris has to share with us today. 
Do you feel like there's something interfering with your happiness or your ability to be your best fucking self, your most joyful, aligned, freaking self? For me lately, there's this energy of unfinished business. There's this energy of wounds that weren't able to be healed in the 3D world that when my brother Joe died, I didn't know what to do with all of that. We had a session booked together the week after he died. And I was never able to have that therapy call with my brother Joe. And so what I have chosen instead is to continue with therapy myself and trust that the work I do is not just on my own and it is still healing that can take place with him on the other side or whatever form his soul may take at this point in time. My therapist over at BetterHelp has been super helpful. We have done some cognitive behavioral techniques. She has given me tools and she has more than anything just held this really beautiful space for me to be able to discuss all the unknowns that I have with grief. And also the confusion that I've been experiencing. And it makes me feel less alone. And like the things I am thinking and feeling are not so weird or crazy. And it's actually really fucking normal. So if you are dealing with any sort of grief, any sort of misalignment, if you're feeling stuck or sad in your life, if there's an issue that you want support with or help working through, or you just want someone to listen to you. I highly recommend you give this service a try. It is affordable therapy. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And there are a broad range of different experts and expertise within these counselors that you can access that may not actually be locally available to you. They service clients across the world. And you can log into your account anytime to send a message to whoever you're matched with. Visit trybetterhelp.com backslash uncensored empath. That's trybetterhelp and get the help that you may be seeking today. You can get 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com backslash uncensored empath. Welcome to the show, Chris. I'm super excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start by hearing a little bit of your journey and how you ended up in hospice care and the CEO and chief medical officer, more specifically of Hospice Buffalo. In your book, I remember reading a line that that just rang really true for me, which is most doctors get into medicine because they're so set on the opposite of keeping people alive at all, you know, all costs. And so I'd love to hear your journey and what inspired you to get into hospice. Well, I, I wish I could tell you it was inspiration, uh, mm -hmm. but it was more accident or fate um, mm -hmm. than anything else. Uh, I, I was no different than anybody else. I was pretty enamored um, with the acute side of medicine. Um, and uh, actually, as a as a resident, I petitioned to get out of my hospice rotation um, because I didn't think there was anything to do uh, from an intervention. 
is embarrassing to say now. Um, what happened was in 99, I was a cardiology fellow and I needed extra income to support my family. And I actually saw a want ad in the paper uh, asking for a hospice doctor on weekends. So I came here really not knowing um, what to do uh, or, or what to expect. And um, what I found was eye-opening, um, which when, when I got to the bedside, realizing that um, there was a larger role to play as a physician, yeah. Um, that of being present and being a comforter. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, over time, a few months, I realized it was actually the most meaningful work I'd ever uh, done and actually appealed to the best instincts that I think that we go to medical school with. Yeah. Um, so that's how it happened. I honor the work that you do. And I, I just, I think it really does take a lot of heart and soul to be in this line of work. I wanted to just read a, a short line, a sentence from your book. I, <laughs> I read it and I underlined like a crazy person <laughs> throughout the entire thing, little nuggets that just really resonated with me. But I'd love to talk about how you also were then inspired to explore more of the non-physical experience of dying, that death is not just a physical decline, but there's also some more subjective ways to study it in um, spiritual experiences. And you, you wrote, the acceleration of science has obscured its art, the art of dying. And medicine, always less comfortable with the subjective, has been more concerned with disproving the unseen than revering its meaning. Can you talk to us about the non-physical experience of dying? Sure. I, I mean, more and more we, we view dying um, through a medical paradigm that's really based on organ failure. Um, it's less of what it is, which is a human experience. Mm. Dying, in, in dying, medicine has reached futility and really nature takes over. And it becomes a very profound human experience, which is a closing of a life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about system failure. And when you medicine more and more, as it becomes more technical and more interventional, fails to recognize those other dimensions uh, uh, like personhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and people die in totality. They don't die in parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and when you realize that, you're forced to reckon that there's some pieces to this that you can't image, biopsy, and measure. Um, that they're experiential um, and they're also very meaningful and profound. Mm-hmm. There are so many amazing stories in your book, your new book called Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. And you, you, you tell these amazing stories with that are based on over 1,400 different uh, patients and, and those experiences that you, know, you were able to witness. and study over a decade. What originally prompted you to start researching that non-physical aspect of dying as a hospice, hospice doctor? Well, I think, first of all, I, I, I realized I had to play a different role. And whether I understood it or not, I need to at least have reverence for the fact that people were having these experiences. And then what really turned it for me um, was the fact that they were obviously so therapeutic, yeah. not just for the person, but for their loved ones. And then uh, why I studied it was interesting. I looked in the literature 
and found that the humanities have always spoken about this mm. uh, in, in ways that we don't even realize it, whether it's Orson Budd and, and Rosebud at the end of, or, or Orson Welles or Rosebud at the end of his life, or in Shakespeare and Plato. It's always been talked about very little in medicine. Mm. And when I tried to teach other doctors, um, the response I always got, well, there's no evidence for this or that these were people were just confused or they were medicated or deoxygenated or whatever. <laughs> so what I did was really did to prove a point, to validate them. And so what we did is we took people and we ruled out confusion. We videotaped many so they sound like you and I. Mm -hmm. um, and we asked them questions every day as they approached death about what they were experiencing. And we're stunned to find out there were some very universal themes that the vast, vast majority, only 90% of the patients were reporting. Were you seeing those themes just in your day-to-day -day rotations and work as a doctor before you did the study as well? No, not at all. Sadly, what happened, particularly in training, um, I was guilty like many of my colleagues of saying the worst thing a doctor can say to somebody who needs them, which is there's nothing more we can do for them. Mm -hmm. um, which really defines our role only uh, uh, as interventional. So in other words, when you're no longer curative, then I don't have a part to play. So those are the terms of the contract often between physician and patient. Right. And we're really guilty then of abandonment. Mm -hmm. And um, so I am sorry to say that I stood back I didn't get closer to the bedside when people were dying. I went on to the next. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of how, how I trained. Mm -hmm. But no, I didn't have an appreciation. It really took people who don't abandon the bedside, who actually deliver care, mm -hmm. um, like nurses and pastoral care and volunteers and music therapists and social workers who stay engaged whether the patient's deemed curative or not. Mm -hmm. I remember that I think you actually opened the book in this way where you were talking about how when you first got into this this area of medicine that the training would say okay let's let's give them medication to relieve to relieve the pain but then if i at some point i can't do any more and it sounds like what you were also able to discover is that there was a lot more you could do beyond that. And I remember reading that there was a nurse that actually, you know, maybe inspired you to get a little bit closer to the bedside and, and to observe or just provide that, that, that love and that care. And that actually reminds me of an, another line I wrote down of your book, which is end of life experiences testify to our greatest needs to love and be loved, to be nurtured and feel connected, to be remembered and forgiven. Can you talk a little bit about those basic needs that then if you do, do get closer, which you do that, get closer to the bedside as people are experiencing death and dying, what is the importance of that beyond just what maybe a you know a pain medication could provide as comfort for somebody? Well, dying's lonely. Mm -hmm. And people don't stop um, fighting to have relevance and to connect. Um, and if you're looking at a white ceiling and you're immobile, um, it matters to, to, to be human um, to, to one another. And when you do that and you do get closer, what you find is uh, that dying is this kind of inward reflective process. And people are drawn to the things that mattered most to them for having lived and for having mattered. 
um, and that mostly revolves around their relationships and who they loved. Can you share with the listeners an example of one of the patients that were part of this decade-long study and anyone who maybe particularly touched you or helped you realize what their dreams were doing for them and what they were experiencing as they were experiencing the dying process? I think that that's really going to I'm trying to remind myself that I've read the book and not everyone listening has read these amazing, just really eye-opening stories. So I'd love for you to maybe share a case study that you... Uh, you know, I, I think one of the most inspiring ones, because I was so naive to it, was, was early on the patient uh, named Mary who had four living children. Mm-hmm. And um, towards the end of the life, she, she was lucid, but intermittently, she would uh, be cradling a baby that we couldn't see and referring to him as Danny. Uh, a reference the children didn't know. And the next day, her sister came in from out of town and, and explained that Danny was actually her first child that she had lost. Mm-hmm. And the, the wound was so deep that she had never been able to really talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that um, we're all wounded for having lived. Mm-hmm. And sometimes this dying process makes us more whole. And what is always um, struck me about that event was um, I couldn't explain it, but what, what was clear to me was it was so obviously therapeutic for her. She looked at peace. She looked um, she looked whole. Yeah. And um, to die, people not only have to be physically comfortable; they need to be psychologically comfortable. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's dying is progressive sleep, and if you can't relax or you're not at peace to sleep, it's very hard to die well. And so here she was being put back together. You know, her physical wounds couldn't be addressed, but her spiritual wounds were. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, and uh, you've just seen it time and time again. So interesting. And again, the stories you tell in the book just sound so healing and not always like comfortable, but, but healing in a lot is showing up in their dreams. And I think that a lot of the eyes of medicine would look at the experience of these dreams that, that these people are experiencing and think, oh, they're just high on medication or they're crazy. Can you also discuss why that's, that's actually not the case and that these people yeah. are having really real experiences? Well, one, one of the worst things about any of this work, uh, there's two problems. One is everybody always views it as a vantage point in which to look at the afterlife or religious paranormal. And what we do is just look at the dying process in and of itself without interpreting. The other is that most people are confused close to death. They do go through delirium, um, stages where they're in and out of consciousness, etc. What's really clear is the vantage point. We're not talking about the moments before death. We're talking the days, weeks, sometimes months. And we did a university-approved study, which means you have to sign consent, have witnesses. And every time we interviewed them or they did a questionnaire, they were screened for confusion. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we filmed them because there's nothing like seeing it to make the case. That yeah. you know, these people are intact. Mm-hmm. Some of them are doing bills still mm-hmm. in their households, and they're still having these uh, these experiences. So it's very, very important. It's demeaning, it's dehumanizing to dismiss them um, as confusional states. One of the interesting things when we did the study and we graded realism on a one to 10 scale with 10 being the most real, 
um, far and away the most common number circled was 10. The people who are experiencing these are very unlike dreams and they appear almost virtual to them. Yeah. And are they all experiencing them in an actual sleeping state? Like, no. That's no? a great question. About half the time they say they're not. And one of the things that happens in dying, as I said, you're sleeping more and more. And our, the sl our sleep architecture often is broken up. Um, so you're coming in and out an awful lot. And what, one of the interpretations is they're lucid dreaming. Mm -hmm. So they're at a level of sleep where it feels virtual. Yeah. Well, and you just mentioned too that part of this is like a progressive relaxation process. So they're getting more and more relaxed. I'm also a hypnotherapist and it doesn't sound so unlike being in a light or deep trance state where you're able to use more of different parts of your brain even. It's actually, it's actually funny you mention that because uh, I've talked to other people who uh, I know very nothing actually of hypnotherapy, but those who do speak of it in that, in that kind of altered state. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the colors are brighter, the smells are, are strong, um, the imagery is potent, the remembrance is, is also very vivid. Yeah. Yeah. So your study revealed that as patients neared death, their dream content shifted from a focus on the living to a focus on the dead. Can you also talk about that or give some examples? Sure, of yeah. So what, what, what happened is we, we had a menu list of things they could choose from uh, in terms of content. And it was interesting because one of the things I learned early was um, the nurses often could predict somebody's death based on whether they were seeing the deceased. Wow. Um, and that's actually very common in other cultures. It's actually a means of connecting to ancestors. They view it as a lineage thing. Mm -hmm. And so it turned out to be true. So when we looked at the content, as people got closer to death, they, dreams more and more were populated by, by people who they loved and lost. And what was very interesting is who appeared. Those people who withheld or conditioned loved were, were edited out. And those people who were securing and unconditional in their love were prominent. When we measured comfort relative to content, the most comforting dreams were of the deceased. So if you put all the data together, there's this kind of natural trend of, as you're getting closer to death, increasing frequency mm -hmm. of seeing the deceased and those that you loved and increasing comfort. Mm. I remember a story uh, in the book as well about a little girl. And, you know, it's interesting because children likely at least haven't experienced a lot of death of people close to them in their life just by the mere fact that they're their children. But I remember in this case, the little girl actually began dreaming of a dog that had passed as she neared or her dreams kind of shifted from the dreams of the living to dreams of the dead. Yeah, you're, you're right. So ch children obviously don't have the same language for death. They don't have the same reference point for mortality. Um, and they often haven't known somebody who is deceased. Mm -hmm. um, and two of the children in the book, and they're also videotaped, mm -hmm. uh, which is really interesting. We can talk about it later, but you go to the author's site and see the actual videos of the children. Um, what they do instead is they all have known animals, whether it was their animal or somebody else's pet yeah. that it passed. And they come to them. And uh, both children basically 
use the same language to describe it. And, and they intuitively understood that um, the significance was that they were not alone, mm-hmm. um, that they were loved, and that they were going to be okay. Mm-hmm. There's, I think, an interesting component that we haven't brought up yet as well, which is that not only are the people who are experiencing death and dying going through experiencing these very real dreams that feel like reality, but there's also the people that love them and are maybe around the bedside with them. How do these dreams affect the people, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children that might also be going through that hospice process with a person who is dying? Yeah, it, it's remarkable. Actually, I, I think this is as interesting as what the patient goes through. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've done two studies, a total of 750 bereaved people we've, we've either interviewed or surveyed, and there's videos of them as well. And, and a, the best way to sum it up is how we see somebody die uh, very much affects how we process loss and how we remember them in their final moments. Yeah. And if... Uh, what's good for the patient, the old adage is, is what's good for their loved one. Mm -hmm. Um, So if they see that person um, comfortable, uh, psychologically at peace, sometimes even enlightened, reunited with those they love. Uh, Imagine your two parents uh, and you've spent 60 years together and you lost a child together. Mm -hmm. And that spouse is, is feeling the presence or the memory of that lost child that pulls you in in a very different way. The context is different. Mm-hmm. Instead of emptiness, there's reunion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, 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 it really is, is remarkable. When we looked, we actually used, there's scales for grief. And when we looked at those, people who had shared these experiences actually did show very positive gains in terms of how they, how they grieved and processed mm-hmm. loss. It's fascinating. It seems that the person who's experiencing the loss of the loved one would also be able to let go a little bit easier. So, for example, if you know uh, a mother, somebody's mother, were in hospice and and about to pass, if they heard from their mother that she was reuniting with their father, it just seems like it would would be more of a peaceful goodbye and also, okay, you are reuniting with the love of your life. And so I, and this, you know, human 3d reality and body here are still on earth. Uh, I can let go. I can, I can actually be more at peace with, with, you know, beyond our fears of them suffering physically, we want to know that they're okay. And we all wonder where is somebody when they're at the end of the life and their eyes are closed? Where are they going? Are they okay? Um, you know, there's a, and even for the demented, for example, it's very interesting. They still have these inner lives and histories. And there's a great video of a woman who's describing her mother at the end of her life. And we live in Buffalo and the thing here is you get married in Niagara Falls, right? And her mother's trying to get dressed and she tells her daughter um, that she's got to get to Niagara Falls for her wedding day. Wow. Uh, she's, ending the near, she's nearing the end of her life, but she's actually reliving the best day of her life. Mm-hmm. And that completely reframes loss. Mm-hmm. And it really gives meaning where you think there might not be any. Yeah, absolutely. 
I shared with you before we pressed record that I've lost both my younger brothers and they were both sudden losses. And so it was a very different experience than many of the those written in, in the book. And I, I just wonder on a personal level how the the grieving process has potentially been very different or altered for me based on a sudden loss versus like you were just saying, the mm, comfort that can come from these dreams being shared with a, with family members during yeah, their... There's really no... Um, there's no way to draw a comparison because it's, it's, it's kind of like what we're experiencing now with this pandemic when people die. Um, they're isolated from us. Yeah. And our, our very humanism and our ability to cope and endure tragedy is, is resides in our ability to be compassionate, to gesture and to show concern for somebody. Mm-hmm. You're denied that. You're actually denied touch. Uh, you're denied connectivity. It, that's how we're human. And, and that doesn't happen in particularly in sudden loss. Um, some people feel that, you know, well, it, it might be better for the, the, the deceased in that they didn't endure protracted illness because I haven't met the person who really wanted that when they're right. completely debilitated. On the other hand, um, grief instantaneously, instantaneously becomes complicated. Yeah. The, 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 and the doubts, of course, will never end. Those are just wounds that don't heal. I think the one thing I've often wondered about is when you talk to people who have had um, near crashes in a car. Yeah. There's a statement that they always say, which is, you know, I saw my life flash before me. And it's an interesting expression that I wonder captures something that people who have, have, have you know, a, a more acute death mm-hmm. experience at, at some level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's it's interesting and a grief is so different for every single person and you you mentioned this in your writing too that it's multidimensional it's flexible it's highly personal how much interaction do you have with the grieving you know process well i guess the grieving process begins for the people in hospice before the person's actually died i would think so you're well, very intimately connected to the it's, grief. It's a really, really great way to put it. We, we get grief all wrong. We talk about grief as though um, it's a reactive process. There's a before and there's an after. Mm-hmm. And actually, for in state of illness, grief starts at the time of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That day, that moment. Um, it's, it's not uh, when there's a funeral. Um, yeah. We, 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 it, it is this undulating process that includes times of hope and despair mm-hmm. um, and all those elements. It's, um, it's, yeah. I well, relate to that in uh, my brother Joe did die suddenly. However, he was addicted to drugs. And so I felt I actually started grieving him six years before he died because I could see his body declining. And so I, I just relate to that in some sense of, I think it'd be similar as if someone were diagnosed with a... Well, it's, it's, not, it's not indifferent in that it's, it's an illness with a physical manifestation. Mm-hmm. So you were having to witness and readjust your perception and your reality of who he was yeah. and who he was to you relationship. 
in terms of relationship. So um, that grief is adaptation, and you were also adapting through all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no, it's not different at all. Yeah. You also mentioned that a good death is dying on one's terms. Can you talk about that and explore just how you've how you've been able to witness or see that in your work? Yeah, you know, it's it's um it's as you described grief, it's highly individualized, it's personal, right? Mm-hmm. Um it's uh what it isn't is it isn't the doctor's death. Mm. So it's that not a, really important to mention. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a sterile death. It's not a dehumanized death. It's whatever that means to that life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's a need to be reconnected, to be loved. It's to forgiven. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's to ask for forgiveness. Um, it's, it's, it's all of those things. It's specific to the life that was led mm-hmm. on those terms. Um, it can't be institutionalized. It can't be policized. It, it can't be any of those. There is no universal experience to dying. And quite frankly, it's hard to have a good death if your life has had so little goodness in it. Right. Do you think, well, I guess on a personal level, do you feel like death is less scary for you? And also, do, does the work that you take part in, I mean, I just feel like so many people are scared shitless of dying it's their greatest fear and you witness this all the time so i'm curious how your relationship to death has changed and also why are we all so scared shitless of dying well i i I think we weren't scared shitless of dying um (laughs) we wouldn't have survived Mm. it's in our innate struggle to remain present so if we hadn't run to this from the cyber tiger cyber tiger we wouldn't have survived so it's it's instinctual we also wouldn't have kept our children alive at all costs we wouldn't have stood in front of the bullet to protect a loved one it's how we move forward uh, as a species um i'm as scared as the next person at the prospect of dying mostly because uh i have lives that are dependent on me mm-hmm. and um that worry doesn't go although it gets easier as people live the full circle of their life mm-hmm. so a 90 year old dies different than a 30 year old um i am much less scared of the dying process from this work mm-hmm. um because what you learn is kind of there's a better story to the process of dying um that most people do reach an acceptance mm-hmm. um that there's an understanding that that that, that uh, illness uh, has overcome them Um, And they do put themselves together in some ways. And in the end, it seems as though what our patients tell us is the best parts of having lived don't go away. They're still there. Um, They're returned to us in some way. And, you know, you see this when a 95-year-old man remembers, you know, the words uh, of a mother that he lost when he was five. Time seems to be irrelevant. Life is kind of measured ultimately in terms of our relationships. That's the accomplishment. And that's kind of what we go back to. Remember another story in the book that was, and correct me if I'm getting any pieces wrong, but it was a a man who I think was incarcerated and he, he reconnected to his daughter in hospice care and uh, again, if I remember remembering correctly, she was hesitant about coming, but then came. And it was like that 
reuniting and healing needed to take place for both of them so that she could like like remember him in a different light but also that he could experience maybe her forgiveness and then feel at peace enough to i know you don't study the other side but you know cross over to whatever people's beliefs are and you know go move on and 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 complete the dying process i I just am seeing so many mutual beneficial components here of the of what the dreams are bringing up for people and then what that what healing that invites into their life yeah yeah it's interesting so about 18 percent of people have very distressing or discomforting dreams Mm -hmm. so you die as you live and if you've had regrets or injuries or harm or love withheld those don't go away um and uh Dwayne was his name, and he was actually fully captured on video as part of a Netflix production in the fall and a full documentary, and it was really fascinating. So he's in his 40s. He had had a tortured life. Um, he was on crack when he was young, and he had actually spent most of his life, more of his life in jail than out. Mm-hmm. And he had head and neck cancer, which means he had kind of open wounds around his neck area. And while he's talking about his dreams on film, he just starts to decompensate. Now, normally he was the most upbeat, jovial guy. We called him the mayor. He had one of those lives that you couldn't live backwards. You couldn't live in regret. To survive, you had to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And what happens is he's talking and he just starts to cry. And he was having horrible dreams. And what he was dreaming of is the people who had harmed him um, were trying to stick knives into his wounds. Uh, and he was trying to explain himself for the first time that it wasn't him, it was the drugs, etc. But what happened was he woke up and he had this need to reach out to a daughter uh, who we were able to get a hold of. And uh, he needed to say he was sorry, really, for the first time and express his love for her. And um, after that, the nightmares went away and he was able to sleep and die comfortably two weeks later and she never left his side so the point is that the dreams that he experienced didn't deny his reality right but but it helped him he got there through the side door but he got there Mm -hmm. to a point where he really could address what he needed to address to be able to to be at some sort of peace Mm -hmm. and obviously that changed um his daughter greatly uh, in terms of how she viewed him and their relationships. Absolutely. You also studied that of uh, a normal functioning brain to somebody with special needs and how that might how that might shift the dreams that they're experiencing. And what did you find? Well, I actually, for me, that's actually some of the most interesting things. I think we get people of um, different cognitive levels entirely wrong. Um, we talk about people with dementia in terms of measures of deficit, mm-hmm. what they can and co- cannot recall cognitively. What gets lost is that they often have emotional histories and emotional lives and emotional tone, and those are often there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a beautiful story in the book uh, of Sammy, who was in her 30s and had Down syndrome, and she had always been powerfully maternal had dolls, slept with dolls, bathed them, fed them, changed them. And she ends up with, um, unfortunately, diagnosed with ovarian cancer, which put a lot of fluid in her belly. So she had this protuberant 
abdomen. And in her dreams, she wasn't, um, she wasn't ill. She was giving life. Mm-hmm. And uh, even at the end of her life, she thought the pain was the baby kicking. Mm-hmm. Um, so people, and, and as I said to the lady, the demented woman who thought she was going to her, her uh, wedding day, there was even a woman who was very demented who had, um, had to escape Nazi Germany. And she had lost, then lost a three-year-old boy. And she was a very, described as a very bitter, angry person and blamed everything uh, somewhat understandably on her war experiences. At the end of the li- her life, though, she returns and she's a mother again. And she looks, is, lo- spends her days looking at the picture of her lost son, blowing kisses and saying she loves him. Mm-hmm. And she was so put back to a better spot psychologically and emotionally that when she looked in the mirror, she would scream because she didn't like the old lady in the mirror and they had to cover up the mirror with uh, blankets. Mm-hmm. So pe- my point is, is people still have these rich inner lives, yeah. whether they can remember what the date is or who the president is. That's, thank you so much for saying that. And I think it's so amazing that you have now the case studies and research to help us all understand that on a deeper level. I do feel like, and I come up with this in wanting to talk about my brothers because I like talking about them and I, part of talking about them helps me remember them and celebrate their lives. But I do feel like much of society still sees talking about death and dying as taboo. Do you think there's a reason behind that or a shift that needs to occur so that we can have more conversations about something that is ultimately inevitable in every single one of our lives. Yeah. You know, we've lost our way with dying and we used to do it better. You know, our grandparents, great grandparents, uh, you know, when you lived in a village, it was a shared experience, whether, you know, you know including your church, but your extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, there was wonderful traditions where people were supported uh, better. Even things like shivets were, where it became, a communal point uh, of support Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't institutionalized and it wasn't sanitized and it wasn't about failed medicines. It was about life at its end and it, it brought us more connection than less. Um, So we've somehow need to reclaim it as a, as a more human event. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that would make it healthier. I think we've lost even the language to support one another. There's awkwardness. People don't know how to comfort. Um, when that, there was a time, and you can see this with other cultures um, and in immigrant communities where they, they, they rally to support, where I think we've become so discomforted by it. Plus, we're a very ageist society, right? And we always believe there's something you can do for something. Yeah, um, you know that uh, you know it's funny when people talk about um, some of the disease they they're they're surprised they can be dying from it because they you gotta be able to do something right you know, always it's always about getting spot welded um, you know and uh, so yeah I think the ageism I think we're death denying as a society uh, and we're youth focused we're interventional and um, we're more isolated as people we don't share experiences in the same way. Yeah, that's really coming to the surface right now. And we're literally isolated. And my hope is that maybe through this 
more forced isolation that we might be re-inspired, reinvigorated to create more real connection and, and like ritual and community and life on the other side. I think it's certainly forcing us to reassess some of our values. Yeah. So I'm just going to read one more uh, short sentence from your book, which says, dying includes more than the physical suffering that we observe. There is a better, less fearful aspect to the end of life, one that validates validates the life-led, lessens the fear of death, and often returns us to those things that we have loved the most. Do you think our society needs a spiritual renewal and patient care? Where have we gone wrong and where can we improve? Oh, boy. Um, I, I think w one area is we need to stop the healthcare economy that allows for abandonment. So in other words, um, if the only way you get care is because for the act of doing something, um, there's no ICD code, there's no billing code for being a comforter to somebody. You can get vaccinated, you, you, you can get a pap smear, you can get whatever, you get a colonoscopy, but you just, it's very hard for, for these more intangible things that people suffer from that are actually more relevant, including mental health. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that. Um, I think as healthcare puts the premium on value as opposed to volume, not the number of people you see, but how they do in your care, um, that might, might change things. I think um, that, and, and, and really that it's not okay to abandon your patient. Um, you know, you shouldn't fall off the cliff. When you need more caring, ironically, we're, you're receiving less caring. In our, in our current system. So I think a, a premium placed on those things. Is, yeah. But as long as it's a fee-for-service mentality, um, and I think doctors need to be educated in different terms and from different disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think they come to go to medical school with the right instincts, but I think we beat it out of them. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> really rings true for me because it, I mentioned also before we started recording that I initially in college had aspirations to become a doctor and I didn't like everything. I mean, just full transparency, I didn't like everything I was seeing and that actually led me down a different path. And I don't regret that. I'm super glad about the path I went down, but I also consider that part of the change is maybe being in our healthcare system and being the change within that space mm -hmm. and it, it i i love that you said that it would be beneficial to have people trained in multiple different things multiple different ways and just to provide more perspective and in a more holistic view and new ideas that versus everyone following all the same uh rules and it feeling more sterile and sanitized like you mentioned previously as well yeah exactly so as we wrap up here, I just would love for you to share any last takeaways with the listeners, as well as where we can find out more about your work and your book. I, again, I, I think it's, um, there's any, any ad advice, it's to, to be a participant mm -hmm. in the care uh, uh, of your loved one at the end of life. Um, it's, it's very possible to kind of get on this assembly line of care and be removed and be less proximate to the person you love. 
Um, and I think it, that that needs to be reclaimed. And to remember something that we hear all the time from caregivers, that it's the best, hardest thing they've ever done in their life. Yeah. And that ultimately, um, it's a very life-affirming process uh, to, to give care to somebody uh, you love. So it's something not to shy from, but to get closer to. Um, you always do better for having done it. You bereave differently for having done it. Um, you can go to drchristopherkerr.com. That's just drchristopherkerr.com. Just encourage people to watch the videos because, again, I can't do them justice, uh, but they're remarkable. I haven't had a chance to watch those yet, so I am definitely going to go over. And, you know, everyone listening, I just, if you're interested, curious, want to understand death or dying process, and for any reason, in any further respects, I, I highly recommend you pick up this book. It just, I feel like if I could wrap up my, the emotion that I, I took away from reading the book, it would be that I was, I felt more comfortable with talking about death and dying. But in getting more intimate in that conversation, it also inspired me to love deeper, live, like just be more alive and to not shy away from what is inevitable for all of us so that to take advantage of the time we do have here and in this life on this earth. And I just thank you for that, Chris. I appreciate it so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I appreciate you and your time and your work and your wisdom so much. Thank you. I hope you loved today's conversation as much as I did. I went over to Chris's website after our conversation and I was able to go to their links on YouTube. And I just finished watching the video titled Dwayne's Dreams Restore His Relationship with His Daughter. And it is so moving and so touching. I highly, highly recommend you go check out some of these videos, especially if this topic of grief really hits home with you and maybe you've lost someone that's close to you in your life. As always, thank you so much for tuning in to today's conversation and I'll see you on the next episode.